Welcome to Con Fuoco, a podcast about classical music and its future. I'm your host, Daniel Cho. I'm a conductor and violinist currently based in Oregon, where I serve as conducting fellow of the Eugene Symphony and assistant conductor of the Oregon Mozart Players and Eugene Opera. Each week, I will be discussing one question about the field of classical music with a guest who I believe can provide valuable insight into where we are as a field and what directions we should take as we move forward into a rapidly changing world. My guest this week is flautist Damare McGill. Mr. McGill is the principal flute of the Seattle Symphony. He has previously served as principal flute or acting principal of the Dallas Symphony, Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, Pittsburgh Symphony, San Diego Symphony, Florida Orchestra, and Santa Fe Opera Orchestra. In addition to his orchestral career, Mr. McGill has gained international recognition as a soloist and chamber musician. He has appeared as a soloist with prestigious ensembles such as Philadelphia Orchestra, Chicago Symphony, Pittsburgh Symphony, Dallas Symphony, and Baltimore Symphony. He has also participated as a chamber musician at festivals like Santa Fe, Marlboro, Seattle, and Stellenbosch Chamber Music Festivals, and is also the co-founder of McGill-McHale Trio alongside clarinetist Anthony McGill and pianist Michael McHale. Dedicated to training the next generation of classical musicians, Mr. McGill has appeared as a performer and educator in countries like South Africa, South Korea, Japan, Quebec, and throughout the United States. He is currently on the faculty of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music as Associate Professor of Flute and is also an artist faculty member of the Aspen Music Festival. This week, we will be discussing the question... What are elements of strong leadership in classical music? Please enjoy my conversation with Damare McGill. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. Um, I wanted to speak to you about leadership in classical music because it seems as though how we see leaders, what leaders look like and how leaders go about leading us, it seems as though that definition is changing. And so I wanted to kind of explore exactly where our field is headed with that, what strong leadership looks like today in a modern world in the classical music field. And so do you have a leader in our field that you admire and what about their leadership style really speaks to you? A very, very good question. Um, I I have an answer to it. I I don't know if this is the type of answer that you may be looking for, but um, I believe that the classical music industry is an industry that has a lot of people that are very good at what they do. From musicians to executives, a lot of us have, have started off playing music from a very young age. We spent a lot of times in the practice room, spend a lot of time um, by ourselves. You can actually really get good at at something. You can get good at running an organization or playing the violin or the flute. That said, I don't think there's a lot of leaders in the classical music industry at all. I really don't. 
I can't think of a single one. I can think of people who are good at what they do, but to be a true leader, you need to be uh, so naturally, organically open-minded because you're searching for a, a result that would propel your organization or actually better yet the field forward. And I think that uh, a, a lot of, most of us, I would say, are innately too selfish to do that because we're so used to just focusing on ourselves. So the most we actually can do, we become like maybe activists, for instance, and this is great. You need, you need people with voices, but unless those voices are paired with action, I can't attach the word leader to that unless you're able to actually um, do things that would upset the, the masses for the immediate future, but would ultimately create an, like an amazing amount of good for everyone else in the long run, unless you're able to do that, then I can't really call you, call you a leader, but you're, you could be amazing at what you do. Part of the reason I started this podcast is because it felt as though our field is a very separated and a very, there isn't a kind of unified mission or a unified thing we're going for. It's just, we're just playing music. Some people are trying to use it to do A or B and other people are trying to do, use it to do C or D. And <laughs> there doesn't seem to be any kind of uh, vision or someone who's leading us toward a future. And it's I, I love that you said that because it, it feels like I'm, my viewpoint is being validated. <laughs> Unfortunately, actually. <laughs> it's unfortunate. I think um, there's a potential for a lot of good to happen, but um, potential, huh? you know, potential, that implies that there's a possibility for it years, years later. And yeah, the biggest problem in our, is our industry is that the thing that's, that's really kind of necessary for any organization is, is, is money. And I believe that a true leader would be willing to make certain sacrifices uh, because they have a, a vision that, that they need, would need to create. And you always have to you always have to make sacrifices in order to progress. You know, for instance, right now I'm trying to get rid of my my COVID weight over the past <laughs> five months of you know. Just um, every day was a treat yourself day. Oh, I deserve this. The world is miserable. Let We're me have these. Through. We're all going through so much and I deserve this cupcake. <laughs> right. But so, you know, I had said, I said, I, this is enough. I've had enough of this. So, of course, when I start to exercise and I start to work out, it is not easy. There's nothing pleasurable about it. I'm in pain. But even, let's say, even like two or three weeks in, I, there, I am so clear about the direction I'm going in. You know, the reward is so great. I feel so much better. But initially, yes, it, it's not easy. And it takes a lot of courage to be able to ultimately do what's right because it's never easy at the beginning. Having the courage to say or do the difficult things 
in that in those spaces where sometimes especially classic music we're doing or saying difficult or different things is so taboo yes absolutely you would have to be willing to lose it all lose everything that you've been working towards since you possibly were six I'd like to shift the conversation now towards sure. um, leadership in musical settings. So mm -hmm. someone, someone who's very good at what they do, like you, you're currently principal flute of Seattle Symphony, and you've served in this, that capacity or as acting principal for amazing ensembles like Mat Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, Dallas Symphony, Pittsburgh Symphony, San Diego Symphony. Are there any kind of um, overarching tenants or principles that you've carried as a principal player through all these experiences as you lead a section, as you work with other principals of other sections? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yes and kind of. Because with each experience, I've grown. I've learned more about myself. I've learned more about how uh, my actions and my my musically speaking and even my words as a person how what i do can positively influence hopefully the ensemble that i'm a part of the colleagues that i'm surrounded by that has shifted over the years what that means for for me so i would say i've been doing this long enough now that there's there's a couple of things that I think are just absolutely important. It's, it's very simple. Be prepared, always do your best. I believe it's part of our job to make our colleagues sound even better. In order to do that, you need to be at the top of your game. But in order to do that also, you need to you need to care. You know, you need to be supportive without even with with words, without words, with your music. If just think if you're in an ensemble where everyone is trying to make everyone else sound beautiful, it's connected to being a good colleague. The one thing that I actually have to say that I have been very focused on and aware of from my very first day in a professional orchestra at, at this point, this was um, Wow, is it really almost 20 years to the day, really, um, that I played? Since I was six years old 20 years ago. <laughs> yes, I, I figured you would say something like that. <laughs> if I were your age, I would say that too. So, um, but luckily, I still have this youthful face. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but from the start, I was aware that my dreams were coming true. I was getting the life that I, I wanted. I, it, I couldn't understand how people could be unhappy with this job. Yet it seemed like a lot of people were and are. And so I can say that over 20 years of doing this professionally, I've never been unhappy with, with my work, ever. I feel just as motivated and inspired by what I do as I did when I was trying to do what I'm doing now. It's, that's exactly the same. The fire that I have is, is exactly the same as it was, let's say, 21 years ago before I had that job. Definitely. It, this desire for self-growth, self for, for progress, for development is just as strong. So 
these are things that I try to bring to to every every job. What do you think has helped you continuously stoke that fire? Because I think for a lot of us, it's quite easy to feel discouraged or often it feels hopeless. Like for now, for example, in the yes. time of COVID-19, practicing is difficult. Working at your yeah. craft is difficult when there isn't something on the horizon that you're preparing for and working towards. And it just feels a little bit like, uh, like lethargic. Is there yeah. something, is there a mindset or is there something specifically you can point to that has helped you stoke this fire? Yeah, it's not always easy. Most of the time it isn't easy, but there's something that I am aware of that, you know, I, I tell myself, usually during times of difficulty or times of trauma, the rich get richer, okay? So this tells me a couple of things. It tells me that prior to something bad happening, it's good to be at the top of your game. It's good to be really prepared. If, to go with a financial analogy, it's good if you can save some money because then when things tank, it's usually the, a really amazing time to, to invest. And so let's just say that you were prior to COVID-19, you were properly investing in yourself, you know, as a person, as a musician. So then this happens. So now you have a moment where the world stops. It doesn't matter who you are, how famous you are, how amazing you are. Um, there, was a, there was a period of time where everyone is at home, you know? And so this is something that we could never have imagined. I would never have imagined that I would have an opportunity to practice like I did when I wasn't a professional. I know that most people are, for good reason, having a difficult time, right? Um, but what I tell myself and what I tell my students is that if you're able to put in the time, even though you don't have anything specific to work for, work, work towards, other than bettering yourself, trying to find a closer connection to the music that you're making, that when this is all done, you will be richer for it. Because the other part of this is that during times, difficult times, the rich get richer, but the poor get poorer. You will, you could, can actually leave this difficult experience with so much earned confidence because you are so much better than you were six months ago, a year ago. It's also really important to know when to just go to the couch and sit down. It could, it could be a day, two, it could be a week or two, you know? But more important than that is, I mean, than even allowing yourself to do that, that's very important, is knowing when to get up. And to stop looking for inspiration. Don't look for inspiration. If you are an instrumentalist, put the instrument together. That doesn't require inspiration. You need hands, hopefully you have hands. Put the instrument together and make yourself play for 15 minutes and do it again the next day. You know, instead of looking for inspiration, look for what ultimately amounts to real true love. And um, I believe 
that commitment is a very important part of that. So just do it. I've, I've found that in, in my process of learning that quite often knowing what not to do is almost as important as knowing what to do. And my, one of my favorite analogies is you're walking through a forest and you're trying to find the trail. If you're trying to look through all the bramble and all the trees for the trail, often it's hard to see, but if you are, have a machete and you're, you're able to hack through all the stuff you don't want, the trail becomes much clearer. What are some mindsets or actions that leaders should avoid, you think, in music performance or just in general when you're dealing with your colleagues or you're, you're dealing with musicians in general? What are some things to avoid? Well, if you want to know what to avoid, it's, it's really important to know what you're trying to accomplish, first of all. That goes for when you're dealing with focusing on music or focusing on people. Your interactions with, with either require you to know what your ob objective is. For instance, when making, when making music, what I notice with a lot of people, you know, maybe a lot of my students, is that they're trying to learn the notes. They get a new piece, they're trying to learn the notes. And then I'll hear them play, and even if most of the notes are there, uh, you know, the music isn't there. But they spend all this time learning the notes, and they will, it still may not be perfect. There's still technical things to work on, and there's no music. So if your goal, let's say in that case, is to be able to play this work beautifully, of course you're going to need to learn the notes in order to do that. But that's only a part of it. If you want to play this work beautifully, you should be figuring out how to play this work beautifully from the start as well. And if you have that as your goal, that will influence your, your focus. You can work in this technical passage, focusing on your fingers while you're focusing on how you want to phrase it. What does this harmonic structure tell you to do, inspire you to do? You know, what kind of reaction do you want to have when you're playing this. So by the time you get you know, to your, your lesson, you have trained yourself to play this piece beautifully. And in order to do that, you're gonna need to know how to play the notes, of course. So um, when dealing with people, you'll disagree with something, right? We have an, a tendency to just, um, we have to actually say something because we think it's gonna make us, it's gonna make us feel better. We have to, this is, you know, if we're angry, we have to say it. Why do I wanna hold this in? You know, we have to say it. And I really do believe that even with people, you need to know what is your goal here? You know, what are you trying to accomplish? Um, sometimes maybe most people will say, I just wanna like get this off my chest. Usually, that doesn't accomplish anything, ultimately. That kind of release, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's therapy for you, necessarily. It can be, if that's your goal, I guess. But it's important just to know what your, your goals are. Then you can, you can focus on finding that path. If you have a machete in your hand and you're just chopping away, it's obvious what your goal is. You know, you can really get lost in just... I don't know, picking up leaves, just in stuff that 
may not actually allow you to accomplish your goal um, when you're not really focused on, okay, I need to get home. You know, one leaf at a time is not going to do it. Know what your goal is and allow that to inspire your actions. I was one of those strange violinists who, um, in school, that all my friends were winds and brass players, not other string players. So, and what always fascinated me about just sitting around them and hearing their conversations was the dynamic of a section where I'm, for me, I'm a violinist, so I've got 15 other people playing exactly what I'm playing. And so it's, it's quite easy to hide and it's quite easy yeah. to fake your way through things. But as a wind or brass player, you're the only one on your part. And so there's a, I think there's a level of fear and a level of also responsibility that goes with that, that string players just don't experience. And mm -hmm. often I would hear um, a friend who was chosen to be principal player for that certain cycle. And they said something to their section and they got some uh, attitude back or something back. And they were telling their friends about it and mm -hmm. all these things. And I was <laughs> always wondering what could, they could have done differently to when they interacted with their section in order to not elicit such a aggressive response, or maybe it's just that person's problem. But I like what you said that having the goal in mind of ultimately having a wonderful performance. And if you can, if you have that goal in mind, your attitude will fall into place and that those relationships will fall into place, the dynamic. It, it may. But if you have that in mind and someone has a response that you feel is unwarranted, unnecessarily angry, if, you're, if your goal is clear and you're also in, are living in a context where you've, you've been a good colleague, you know, you've been supportive, then that's not on you. Right. You know, sometimes people, um, are dealing with their own things, but if you're in the in in the a place of positivity, you have created an environment, even if it's just for a week, where you've been even musically supportive. You want your colleagues to sound good. Your request that comes from a place that wants to continue that growth, this positivity, this effort for excellence. If that's taken in a negative way, then that's, it's not on you. I completely agree. But how do you, it's important for people to have the understanding that if you do are in that situation, it's not on you. Mm -hmm. um, but how do you move forward from there? Once mm -hmm. you, do you have a candid conversation with this in or do you, you can move on? Uh, you can definitely, there's nothing wrong with after all is said and done, just approaching the person, you know, I don't know if there's any misunderstanding. I thought this would help help us us sound great. I definitely speak about the us and the we more than the I and the me. So it's it's hard to argue with that. If you wanted us to sound great and you thought that by making the suggestion we would sound great, I mean that by itself uh, can shut people up. This wasn't about me. Like <laughs> it was about us. You know, there's, there's a time for private conversations and there's a time for witnesses. You know, um, oftentimes I've been in, well, not oftentimes actually at all, but I've been in situations 
luckily, this, ha this has been the opposite of oftentimes. It's, it's been rare, where I just, if I was saying anything official, I'll make sure there was someone there to protect myself. But make sure your intentions, your intentions are always good and that everything you're doing is for the we. And I, I'd like to connect this back to the beginning of our conversation when we were discussing the lack of leadership in our field. I like what you said about the we and thinking of in terms of we, and it seems as though we at the, as classical musicians are often so focused on I and how do I yeah. sound and, and what, what am I doing? And there's, there is no collective responsibility, I guess. And that, that, I guess that starts with strong leadership. Yes, it does. It, it's um, the, the leader sets the tone for the, the section, literally sets the tone and otherwise, you know, of the, of the section or the organization or the ensemble. I mean, it's leadership is important. You're uh, in addition to your career as a soloist and an orchestral musician, you're also an associate professor of flute at Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. And you're also an artist faculty member of Aspen Music Festival. In your experience of teaching and being around other teachers, do you see any leaders in preparing music students for classical music, the field of classical music today, specifically addressing how classical music is, applies to a modern world? Um, and in what ways are they educating students that you admire or that you think is important in, in that very facet? Another very good question. Uh, this is also a little difficult for me to answer because there are so or there are really so many great teachers out there. There are teachers that I learn from via uh, watching them teach in the class, or actually via their students. I definitely have no shame in and trying, you know picking someone's brain like so. What did you work? What did you work on? What do you work on? to accomplish this in your lessons. And I'm trying to learn as, a, as a, an instrumentalist and uh, as a performer and as a teacher. I'm, you know, there's, I'm trying to be a, a sponge always. Um, that said, this detail of, of what teachers are really training their students to be equipped for the modern classical music role um, is actually it's very difficult for me to answer you know, I guess you can say the proof is in the pudding. Let's, we can talk about people that are, have adapted well, and then we would need to just ask them if they got it from their teacher, who did they get that from? I do believe that the role of the teacher has kind of expanded a little bit now in that, you know, my goal is not necessarily to get my students into, you know, an orchestra. My goal is to actually get my students to be really good problem solvers. They can figure out how to get from point A to point B and any number of situations. You know, I believe that that's it's been useful to me. There's, I've had a variety of, I don't know, incarnations in, in my musical existence. There were times where I wanted to just do like maybe consulting work for nonprofits while I was playing in orchestra because I um, co-founded a chamber music organization and I loved, I loved that. I loved the putting together the programs. I love the administrative work. I love meeting the donors 
and that was more interesting to me. You know, I mean, there's times when, you know, I love chamber music. I could just do that. I love orchestra. I could just do that. I love teaching. I can just do that. I love talking, obviously. Like, it takes me 20 minutes to answer one question. I could just do that. But I actually even believe that if that whatever um, skill set I'm using to do these things, um, that I could use those skills in any field that I was passionate about. I believe that they're universal and they could exist outside of this field. It's just belief that I believe that I can find the art in anything. So if you're, if you're teaching your students to think this way, you know, it's great. It's like, I want to play in an orchestra, no matter what. Well, that's great. You have to be passionate about a goal, but you should be trained to, um, to be almost a survivalist, you know, like out in the world as well, while you work to attain that goal, to make that dream come true. So I, I can't, it's hard for me to give specific names. There's a lot of really good teachers out there that are producing really great students. And I don't, I personally don't think that it's unique to now because there's always been a lot of musicians unable to find work. There's those who are, are unable to find like a really good paying music job that are still able to put things together and have a very fruitful career. I mean, this was the case I would imagine even 30, 40 years ago, you know, right now it's still, I mean, it's, it's, it was hard then. It's hard now to get a job, but I think it's very important to, to know how to live. It, I, I found that in music education, it, it seems as though schools and teachers prepare students for a very specific future where, and unfortunately that they're teaching every student to prepare for this one specific future, but there's only so many positions available and there's only so many of those students who will be able to fill those spots. And so I, I, I definitely agree that it's always been hard as a musician to find work and to find a way to make a living. But it seems as though that attitude that's being taught where someone needs to be a problem solver, someone needs to be creative in the way that they process what's happening to them and they can find different avenues for them to be artistically fulfilled, but also make a reasonable income. It seems as though that is starting to become a little more of a priority for teachers than it was mm -hmm. before. Would you agree with that? Yes, I do agree. The route has been difficult, but yes, the focus on even, for instance, entrepreneurship this sort of thinking outside of the box in order to find your path that that is is newer yes definitely and i think it's important as our country as a whole goes through a little bit of a reckoning and a little bit of a we are having to confront the sins of our past our field specifically is having to reckon with the fact that it has excluded certain people groups of people from our ranks. What would you like to see from those in positions of leadership in organizations that will create lasting and meaningful change, not just these uh, gestures and these statements of solidarity? But what would you like to see that you believe 
will create actual meaningful change in our field? This, very, this is very, it's very simple for me to outline what I believe needs to happen. Um, and some of these things are easier to do than others. But if you really want to eliminate, or it's actually it's not about eliminating anything. If we want to do what's right, if you diversify the music, if you diversify administration, if you diversify the board, if you find ways to diversify the musicians, then I think it's a, an amazing opportunity to carve out a very appropriate and unique and strong place for American orchestras and the international scene. Because then you will truly have an American classical music art form that's representative of what should be embraced as what makes America <laughs> great. <laughs> ah, that's so funny. Yeah, really, it should be that, that diversity because that, there's, that is where the excellence lies. And actively searching, acknowledging, and rewarding the excellence wherever it comes from. As soon as you limit your search for excellence to, or to a very narrow field, then that is bad, it's bad business. And I will even go one step further. If you do that, if you diversify the musicians, the admin, the board, the music, you actually have a shot in diversifying the audience. You know, if you pair that with a major marketing campaign, this is your music. There you go, that's the slogan. We are your music. You have a chance because I promise you, if you, once you change all of those things and you diversify all of those things, classical music is still elitist, okay? Even in, an, in a, let's say, in an all-white European environment, classical music is still elitist. So you can diversify everything and whoopee, we've been, if you're a black classical music, musician, we're happy, but it doesn't mean that the audience really changes. But you then have an opportunity to do what seems to be the unthinkable, is, and that is to actually diversify the audience, because then you would have people in the audience that represent the community that these nonprofits supposedly serve. So uh, that's, that's my formula in a nutshell. Some of these things are easier to do than others. But the more you do, um, the easier the other things become. You know, if, if there are people of color in positions of leadership, in admin, for instance, and on the board, that is going to greatly influence and inspire the actions of the organization as a whole. So that things that may need to happen in order to then diversify the, the musicians are, can be more likely to happen. You know, it is important to do something, to check something off the list, because each check makes it easier to accomplish 
that most difficult check, you know, that most yeah. difficult box. A lot of the actions that organizations take, it seems like they don't even run those actions by people of color at all. It's, it's like they get, they get together and they say, this sounds good, we should do this. And then they're completely and utterly baffled as to why it didn't work or why it didn't well, have any effect. If, if you are trying to do something to help, to not even help, to better your organization by opening your eyes to entire, like a larger field of excellence. If you don't have anyone to ask if this is, what do you think about this around you, then there, then you know what you could possibly address first. <laughs> it's, it's very, it's very simple. I've been so happy, I, for lack of a better word, to help as much as I, I could this over this, this summer a variety of organizations and a variety of people in these organizations, you know, and I'm happy to help. I'm happy they're, they're reaching out. But, um, you know, the fact that they have to call me or email me and I don't even play in their orchestra, that says a lot. So you know what to address. If there's no one in admin that you can talk to, if there's no one on the board that you can talk to, and of course there's no musicians you can talk to because you're calling a, a flutist from a completely different orchestra who's black, right there. You know, you're like halfway there. You already know what needs to be fixed. The answer seems so obvious and so in their face, but it's sometimes those things are the hardest to see. Yep. So true. Um, I, I, I think, I believe it's important to show how musicians are multifaceted and not one dimensional. So I like to end all these conversations with the question, are you currently going through a non-music related obsession or something that you're very passionate about? Mm, oh yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Well, right now I, I, I mentioned earlier, I'm trying to get getting rid of the COVID pounds and I've, I've been doing it long enough that I'm into it. Like I feel do, like doing these workouts are, I feel mentally stronger. I'm getting mentally stronger, you know? So I'm really into that. Um, I did enjoy this summer cause I had, I had, a, I had free time, you know, <laughs> other than the zoom meetings. Yeah, I played a few video games. That's what I did. Oh yeah, that's great. And <laughs> yeah, and I was there anyone and, that really spoke to you? Yes, yes. Um, God of War. Oh, I'm actually just started that video game just now. <laughs> yes, and what is the one? Um, Horizon Zero Dawn. Horizon Zero Dawn actually was a very it was a beautiful game. Like I said, I, I don't have to be a musician to be able to find art in anything. I really feel that as a person, as a professional, and. Yeah, these these games that I finally had time to play, I couldn't believe how beautiful, yeah, how, I think how emotional I, they were. Oh yeah, I I really think the future of storytelling is going to be in video, not in movies anymore, in video games. Right. Kind of interactive story. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. just so, and the stories they're telling are so interesting and so intricate and deep. And I, I yes, I, I, this this whole summer has been a video game summer for me as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I say that with no shame. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mr. McGill, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you being here. It's a real pleasure speaking to you. Wonderful questions. Mm -hmm.
That was my conversation with Principal Flute of the Seattle Symphony, Damare McGill. Thank you very much for tuning into the podcast. If you have any questions you would like discussed on the show or any guests you would like to hear, please email me at confuocopodcast at gmail.com. Confuoco is produced by me, Daniel Cho. See you next week. Thank you.